Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Build Value by Choice. I'm your host, Nana Bonsu. I'm the president and CEO of Infinite Horizons Incorporated, where we help business owners scale the value of their business so that they can they can either exit on their own terms or they can pass it down to um, the next generation. This week, uh, we are going to be talking about how the CEO of a major healthcare products company was able to scale up its business. And uh, please don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave us a review um, just so we know how we're doing and uh, we can uh, respond accordingly. Um, now, on to today's guest. Our guest today is Ryan McGalling. Ryan McGalling is the CEO of Professional Hair Labs. Uh, he set out on his journey to help create the world-leading product in cosmetic bonding when his mother was poisoned by the harmful chemicals in the hair adhesive products commonly used in the industry. Inspired to keep the same thing from happening to anybody else, uh, his family dove into the research and created the first hair care product uh, free of harmful uh, substances. Now, nearly 20 years later, Ryan is an international business leader and an entrepreneur who works in more than 15 different countries. There, he helps create sustainable services and products in industries full of subpar and even harmful options. With his expertise, he's been able to formulate strategies for success in multiple different industries, as well as dedication to people first. He has expanded his business tenfold and grown to become one of the 500 fastest growing companies in the U.S. over the last five years, and has sold more than $50 million in product uh, globally. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks. I uh, appreciate you having me, Nana, and I, lo- I look forward to the uh, to the conversation. Yeah, yeah, no, awesome. Yeah, I know, like, you know, the pre, pre-interview conversation, I just told you about how I was listening on some conversation among business owners about uh, growing your business. Some people were of the view that, hey, if you grow your business too much, then you, you lose touch with customers, or uh, it may be beyond your capacity to be able to manage your business or your costs or expenses, you know, go up. Um, um, you know, before I get into, you know, what are some of the lessons you've learned um, and why that may or may not be true, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just a little bit deeper about the hair care products industry and just, you know, just to give us a little bit more about you and the healthcare industry, you know, other than what I just mentioned in your bio. Sure. Yeah. So we, 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 um, Predominantly, the company started in the non-surgical hair replacement niche. So it was a very niche company supplying a solution to individuals who suffered from hair loss, whether it be through hereditary means or health issues, you know, such as, let's say, for example, if they had cancer and they were going through chemo and naturally their their hair was lost. Um, so our, our products provided a solution for, for those situations. And over the years, then we've developed uh, not only our own product line further, um, but we've been able to expand our uh, cosmetic offerings uh, to a wider range of, of different categories, such as body care, skin care, and further you know ranges of hair care as well. So it's the mission of the company, while it was based around safety, um, we've kind of aimed to take those same principles and methodologies and bring them deeper into the cosmetic space. The company was originally started in 1994 by my father, uh, and it was started after my mother got chemical poisoning and she was forced into early retirement. And he sold the hair replacement studios that they had with the aims of creating a line for technicians and for hair wearers that was safe. Uh, so it's developed from there, um, you know, from, from 94 till about 2008, 2009, it was you know, hovering peaks and valleys in between 250 to 270, uh, you know, K a year business. So roughly average about 20 to 25,000 a month. And, um, you know, when we stripped the company back and looked at the simple things that we could do to 
improve the um, the exposure of the products to the industry uh, over a very short period of time. The next 18 months saw us uh, triple revenue. And then we knew we had validated the product and we realized exactly what we were missing. So we've used that information then to expand to different regions, different areas around the world, and ultimately also end up opening a European location to facilitate global distribution as well. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a great journey, and that's really the bird's eye view of who we are and where we have come. Uh, so you know, I'm looking forward to exploring some of that with you. Awesome, yeah. Two two questions just kind of popped off the top of my head right away. One was the ability to um, transfer from your dad to you, because a lot of um, the statistics for um, uh, successful transition from first generation to second generation business owners, it's not very good. It's like 30% or something like that. So that's uh, that's that's a good one I would like to explore with you in terms of the, the secrets behind um, the successful uh, transfer. And then the second thing would be um, the supply chain and how, you know, how have you been able to navigate the current, you know, post pandemic uh, environment? So let's start with let's start with um let's start with the fact that um you know you're able to transition from your dad to you and what was the secret behind that because like I said I mean you know based on statistics that I've seen it's it's usually um, not very high um, no. yeah no and so I think I think it comes down to two things um, when you're growing a company uh, of any sort of magnitude naturally depending on different variables the niche you're in or the industry um, the profit levels. Uh, there's multiples of that value that are given towards evaluation of a company. So you're really left with one choice. I mean, it's, you know, if you don't make the decisions that are required to, you know, to protect it, uh, you, you're either going to one, give up most of it to, you know, to revenue or IRS, or number two, uh, you can be a little bit strategic about it and work on a succession plan. It's going to cost you on both ends if you have the right people uh, who have the experience, but the, I, hiring experienced people to help you make that plan is really what's going to save you money in the long run. So that would be the first thing. Um, you really have to get honest with, with the question is that, look, if you do nothing, it's going to be pretty bad. And if you do something, it's it's not going to be pleasant either because it opens up a whole door of all other aspects of different conversations you have to have, you know, uh, probably conversations that you might have been avoiding for the last 10 years, you know, but ultimately they have to happen. And there has to be a certain level of acceptance and understanding that, it might be a little bit uncomfortable during the way, but you know, when you have everyone with the same goal in mind, um, I think naturally if you have a good communication line open and you are able to take an empathetic approach towards the collective of individuals involved, I think it goes a long way to navigating those waters. Look, succession planning is not easy. And especially, you know, in our instance, you're, you're looking at, you know, my father who had been involved in the industry for so many years uh, making a plan to essentially let it go. It's tough. And, um, you know, I can understand how tough that is, but in order to continue his mission and his vision, um, you have to be in a position and be willing to make those choices. Was there a particular moment that forced his hand or did he just have some kind of internal um, epiphany or was there some kind of external kind of problem that happened? Um, so for us, th th there wasn't exactly a light bulb moment. I think it was a collective of experiences over a period of time that made him see the way this needed to go and the safe way to go about this. Because, look, ultimately, we undertake the this journey um, majority because, number one, we want to protect the future growth of the business. But number two, it's because we don't understand how it should be collectively put together. You can't simply just hand somebody something and that that that's it. 
So I think throughout, you know, a process of a year and a half, which it took us to get through this, I think there were certain situations where he realized from the legal advice we were given by our tax consultants who were helping us put in this structure that uh, this transition was simply a monetary exchange uh, and, and, and an ownership exchange. There was agreements put in place to ensure that, you know, forever for the rest of his life, he would be well looked after. So um, I think when you look at letting go, uh, typically that that's probably one of the key things that you know, you have to deal with because you're so used to being in control of your your own path. And then when you make a change like this, um, it requires a different way of thinking. And and that's tough, especially when you've been doing it for a certain way for so many years. So um, there wasn't a light bulb moment, but I think it was just a collective of experiences at the right times along the way that 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 helped him become a lot more comfortable with how things were going. And, you know, if for the people that haven't been there, um, what was the uh, what was the post succession uh, like? Because there's there's life after the transition, and it's not yeah. all bad. But so, what 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 are people uh, business owners that may be you know a little bit skittish about? Hey, um, this is my this is my purpose. What's going to be my my purpose? So you know, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I won't feel needed, and I won't have any friends. Uh, all my friends will still be in the business if I'm not you know involved in it as actively as I was before. So I, I think the beauty in that is it all comes down to the operating agreement that, that you put in place. Um, you know, an operating agreement can be essentially whatever you want it to be. So if you have an individual who's letting go, um, who's moving to a next phase of their life and they're making a succession plan for their family, um, that future can look whatever way you want it to look as, you know, and, and as long as it's all in agreement, then there's, there's no problem. So you can be as active or as not active in the business as you choose to be. Um, for my father, um, it made more sense for him to be involved on a board level, uh, you know, in terms of decisions. Uh, so, you know, each week there would be a, a collective of information that would be discussed and reviewed with the board. And, uh, we move forward from that point. So um, for that, that that's enough for my dad. Um, but you know, for somebody else, it might not be enough. They may need to be involved in in the day to day in a different capacity. So uh, it's about figuring that out, and it just means a lot of different things for different people. Now, did you have any other family members in the business, or was it just you and your dad? No, I have two brothers. Uh, so my I have a brother Daryl who who's here with me in Europe, and then my brother David who is in the U.S. So collectively, the three of us um, uh, run run the company, and uh, we 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 set the future goals and the visions and the directions. Okay. All right. No, this is this is a, a successful story because a lot of times when you have family dynamics, sometimes it can be kind of complex. <laughs> um, <laughs> And especially if some are, some are involved and some are not involved, but in this case, it doesn't look like uh, you know we have that issue. No, and and we you know we could have, uh, but I, I think there's two things that 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 we that we do very well. Um, we communicate well, and we have empathy, which means that we have the ability to put ourselves in each other's shoes um, in times where we may not uh, be able to see all the time the other the other perspective. So. In times where, you know, there might be some sticking points, everyone realizes that we just need to stop. We just need some, we need to let, you know, let the conversation breathe a little bit and we'll come back to it. Um, so I, I think having um, having just an open mind when it comes to the running of a company is, is, is absolutely essential. And I think that's why we avoid most of the heavy issues because we, we deal with them before they become monster issues. Yeah. What do you think, um, um, 
what, what did you like stand to lose on? How much money? Because you had mentioned something about the amount of money that you invest in getting the right succession plan in place yeah. appeals in comparison to what you could lose in the end if you don't have the right structure in place. What would yeah. you say the ratio is, is like? Well, let, let's put it this way. A couple of years ago, if, 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 we hadn't, um, if we hadn't taken the journey and done what we did, um, we would have been on the hook for probably the bones of about $30 million. And that is uh, that wasn't an option for us because when that when something like that hits, you've got two options. You've got a payment plan, you know, with the different governing bodies, IRS or revenue, whatever it may be, or you know, you have to liquidate assets. And uh, in order for us to liquidate assets means that the company would take a hit. And what's the point in committing to doing something that's going to impact people's lives if you're just going to turn around and allow? a large percentage of it to be taken from you in the end. You know, it's just like, you don't have to do that. And if you're like, we, we can't take, here's the thing. We can't take it all with us. So what do you do? Do you let your ego override your ability to be a smarter individual and say, listen, I, you know, this is a succession plan and that's exactly what it means. It's the ability to move it on to future generations. And, you know, I'm sure my, at some point, my father looked at it like, you know, my grandkids won't see any of the benefit from what we're doing now if I don't do something like this, you know, and that's typically the way it works. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, yep. So that, you know, essentially it was like maybe, you know, investing like maybe you know, 1% of that or 10% of that you know, to save yourself 30 million. Is, you it, know. Exactly. And, and you know what, if, if you get people who are good at what they do and are able to um, base it off of even past structures that they put in place that they know have worked. Like, for example, you know, when you make changes like that, naturally, you know, you have to respect the fact that, you know, at some point you're going to have to answer something, you know, to the IRS or to revenue, whoever it's going to be. Um, but if you've got, you know, a good team with you that that have faced these challenges before and they put in structures that have um, stood up against these queries, uh, you're in a good place. And that is going to cost you money, but it's it's pennies in comparison to what it could potentially cost you. So who was, uh, besides your, your tax attorney, who else was involved in your advisory uh, team? Yeah, so we, so we have quite a few people. So we have a board, um, which, which is involved with multiple people, but we also have operational consultants. We have digital consultants. Um, we, have, we have a good solid advisory team around us that are helping us navigate the waters in times where we're a little bit unsure, you know, like, um, you know, look, we work, uh, for example, one, one of the advisors we work with um, was heavily involved in the communications business for many years. And um, he's got vast experience in rolling out uh, different platforms and programs in different countries at the same time. So, uh, you know, where where are you going to learn these things without getting the information for people who have experienced it before it? And that, that that's one of the, been the key parts of our growth is that, you know, there's always times where we entered waters that make us uncomfortable because we don't know a whole lot about it. But as people, we're willing to learn. And then we go look for the people who can provide that to us. So um, right now we have roughly about nine people on the advisory team. So it's it's working quite well for us. Okay. So first be willing to learn and then go find the, the people that can help you learn. Exactly. You know, that's it. There's always somewhere or somebody that has, uh, ha- has, uh, learned from the growth pattern that you're on and they have the information you just you have to be open enough to find that person and or people and 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 you know lean on them for for what 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 they can provide to you i want to circle back to that in a bit but first i wanted to you know make sure we touched on the global uh the global supply chain impact and how you know you know you guys have navigated that 
Yeah, that, um, that was at a period of time quite volatile for us, um, especially when COVID first hit. Uh, we were very fortunate because we had large buying powers for raw materials and ingredients. So when the tightening of the belts came and, you know, manufacturers of the raw materials shut down um, or they had production issues, um, we were able to buy large quantities of what we needed uh, to facilitate our ability to continue to produce. Um we saw it like, I mean, fortunately for us, it never really impacted us any more than three weeks out, two or three weeks out. Uh, whereas, you know, we, we would have ordered materials, gotten them within four weeks, six weeks at most. But that pushed out to about two months then um, during COVID. So we were able to just buy what we needed in larger amounts and secure the materials. So it was a it was a huge um I, I tell you, it was a huge learning curve for us because it actually made us feel like, you know, we were very exposed um, because, you know, what's the worst thing that you can do is turn around to a customer and say, listen, I can't give you this product because, uh, you know, we don't have the material or even worse yet, we can't give you this product that we make for you and it's your it's your brand and your product. And uh, they're like, well, that's not my problem. And they're right. It's not their problem. <laughs> so it's... It, it, we 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 dodged a bullet there and um you know we 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 patched the holes to make sure that we um we reviewed our 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 you know our, our kind of material flow policy to make sure that look we'd have to invest an extra 10% ahead of you know weeks ahead of where we wanted to be to to ensure that we wouldn't run out in in the face of another uh you know round of 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 a pandemic or anything that happens in the future so um yeah that that was a huge learning curve for us so um, one of the things, and, and I, I want to kind of delve into that a bit because I think that's that's a, a key. This is a key kind of teaching teachable moment. You know, back in the nine eleven time frame, one of the reasons why um, one of the case studies that at least uh, that was touched upon uh, in one of the business courses that I took was, you know, for instance. Um, um, Southwest Airlines was able to come out ahead of the airline industry um, because they had, you know, bought oils and oil into the future, and therefore, when 9/11 hit and oil prices, you know, jacked up, and that nearly wiped out the whole airline industry, they had to go get like government subsidies and stuff like that. Um, because they had already purchased um, oil futures and selling low price, they were able to keep their margins and sustain themselves. So it sounds to me. That you know, maybe not quite. You know, you didn't quite foresee the pandemic uh, black swan event uh, coming, but you may have had enough cash reserves uh, to be able to, you know, once you start happening, to be able to say, okay, normally we keep inventory for three weeks, but we're gonna buy like you know two months in advance and and take a hit on our balance sheet because we're gonna be reserving a lot of inventory um, just so we can weather the storm. Um, what, was was that true? I mean, was it your ability to you know navigate around you know see you know around the corners and also having enough um, you know cash flow or cash reserve to be able to purchase? And what did that mean? And the third question is, what did that mean in terms of you know keeping maybe too much inventory and taking a hit on your balance sheet? Maybe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the, it, it was actually a good comparison you made there with Southwest Airlines because it would have actually been similar to what what we did. Now, I I didn't know that that that's what they did until you just said it there, but uh, that's exactly the you know the, the kind of comparison that you could make there. Um, it, it enabled us to allow us to keep, keep prices consistent, uh, and because we have the cash flow there, we always are quite um, reserved with our cash flow. We make sure for times like that. Uh, where there might be an economic downturn 
or whether there might be a shortage of something that we have excess funds there to purchase uh, larger quantities. Now, of course, we're carrying that in the balance sheet, but for us, um, we know that ultimately we will trade through that. And in fact, um, if it comes to a point where we're carrying too much, uh, we start to create promotions then to blow some of that stock out and uh, and 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 turn turn more. You know, whereas you might have a client that orders five thousand dollars worth of um, a specific product, uh, we could turn around and you know we could say, listen, if you you know you order that five thousand, now we can give you you know a thousand free. So it allows us to get some of that stuff off of our sheet. Um, uh, but at the end of the day, I, I really think it, it just comes down to you need to be, especially when you're in manufacturing, you need to be a little bit clever because you're 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 kind of battling against the unknown variables. You're carrying materials for your own brand and your own product line. You're carrying materials for you know private label customers or custom formula customers. And you want to carry enough to where they don't run short, but you don't want to obviously carry too much because you're you're just you're not you're not remaining profitable in the line. So uh, there is a fine line and a balance, and I, I suppose keeping a close eye on your cash flow is 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 quite important. Um, and trying to project it as, as as far out as as you can, you know, twelve months to see are there going to be any sticking points based upon seasonality, based upon uh, previous history that you know of of sale velocities of certain products and product types and categories. So there's a lot of moving parts within that, but um, you, you know, look, I, I think again, it comes down to having different perspectives and 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 actual statistical data to to work on uh, is is really what carries you through that. And I'll give you a prime example. You know, when we when COVID hit, we uh, in Ireland we were deemed a non-essential service, so we were actually faced with closing our doors for three months. And to us, that wasn't an option because if something like that happens, um, you know, people people end up losing their jobs. And to me, that's just that that's the first and foremost. We we look at that first. So the team got together within 24 hours. We were like, okay, look, we know we can actually make hand sanitizer. Never had it in our line before. Uh, we know we have a large. Um, uh, we have access to a large amount of alcohol because of our our vendor relationships that we have. Uh, so we went straight away in 24 hours, bought a ton of it, and uh, we started making hand sanitizer and we were legally entitled to keep the doors open. And we started to build relationships around sanitizer products because they were in shortage. Um, we were carrying those products on our th those raw materials on our balance sheet for some time. Um, but it was that initial impact of being able to carry our doors open that uh, allowed us to build relationships we never had before. And if we hadn't been in the position to have the cash reserves to do that, we would have been stuck and we wouldn't have had a choice then because really it was all about at that time, if you've got the cash to pay for it up front, you're going to get the stuff. That is, that's a, that's a great, great, great point. You know, another teachable moment, which is be, be um, ready to be able to adapt. And of course, you need the cash to be able to do that, but being able to uh, adapt and pivot when these things happen is, is absolutely crucial. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that then brings me to this point, because I've seen, uh, you know, I had mentioned in the beginning of this conversation about, you know, debates that have gone on about, hey, you know, do I really want to grow more than I can handle? I imagine if you had been, if you didn't have a certain size, you probably wouldn't have been able to pivot the way you did, probably. Um, so uh, what would you say about, you know, in terms of size, right? Um, okay. The lessons that you've learned from scaling your business. I think... Off the cuff, I, I, I think it comes down to, I suppose, making a decision of what you want for yourself. Because I mean, success or 
whatever way, whether it's professional or personal, it looks different for everyone. And I think it's asking yourself the question, well, what do you really want? If you have a product or service that is making a difference to people's lives, that mission motivates you to want to change as many lives as you can or contribute to as many lives as you can. So I think that naturally just stimulates the need to grow large and to grow as much as you can. But on the flip side, if you if you are solely focused on maintaining a close one-to-one relationship with your customers, naturally time becomes the, the, the bottleneck there. So there's an acceptance that you know, you're going to have to grow to a certain level to make it manageable and maintainable because you want to have that you know, you, you still want to have some sort of a personal life. So I, I really think it comes down to just asking yourself the question, look, what do you really want? If you want to grow and scale to a certain level, uh, you're going to have to be willing to let go of things and sacrifice and compromise some of maybe the important parts of the business that you wanted to keep or you wanted your business to operate in. On the flip side, you, you know, commit to making it the way you want it and keeping it smaller and, uh, and, and, you know, maintaining a, a, a healthy balance that you're happy with. Uh, really, I, I, I don't think there's, there's not a right or wrong, you know, uh, I think it really comes down to look, as you grow, there's more challenges, more learning is needed. Um, if you stay in the same place where you master it, um, yeah, it, it, it can be, a, you know, it could be quite a, a lucrative lifestyle for you and, and you get the, you know, the buyback of the personal time that you want sometimes. You see, when you're growing a business, it, it's like peaks and valleys. Um, you become so inundated with, uh, with, with, with tasks and the growth of the company and you do a time study then and you find out where the, you know, where you're spending most of your time tactically. And then you hire people to fill those holes and you move on to the next phase and you buy back some of your time. So it's like it's it's like a constant circle. Whereas if you look at it the other way, um, really what it comes down, it comes to, down to mastering your craft. So you invest X amount of time to become a master of what you do and then you keep it at a certain level and that's where you want it to stay. So um, again, I just don't think there's a right or wrong. I just think you have to be willing to accept the compromise and sacrifice for either or. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. Now, when you were scaling, because one of the other concerns that business owners tend to have is, um, you know, when you scale, your cost or your expenses go up. So, um, how do you keep your cost or your expenses, or how did you keep your cost or your expenses reasonable while you were scaling? And also the fact that you have to, you know, bring on additional talent and, you know, quote unquote, the headaches that come with that. <laughs> <laughs> and whatnot. So, uh, if you can touch on uh, on that, that would be great. Yeah, I don't really even think there's there's much of a magic bullet there. I mean, every month we would look at our profitability and we choose to just reinvest some of that back into what the company needed. Um, you know, look, I mean, naturally, if we're on a decline for six months, where you know we see ourselves down on a on a on a downward scale, obviously we have to make some decisions. But we're keeping consistent cash flow to manage those peaks and valleys. You know, some some months you're going to have a higher revenue than others. But in those months where you have the higher revenue, you just put a bit more away. And then that starts to compound. And that allows you to do the bigger things. Like, you know, for example, if you have to, uh, you know, invest a couple of million into new um, into new machinery or, you know, for in our example, where we had to in, in invest, you know, a few million to acquire uh, a new location to expand our operations. Uh, that that's really how we managed it. We just looked at it month on month and just said, listen, 
look, we have, you know, our profitability is X this month. We're going to put a larger portion away. And then if the profitability wasn't as heavy uh, the month after that, we would scale it back and, 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 and look at and keep it in direct proportion to the revenue generated. So in terms of your growth, um, do you grow? I mean, obviously you're growing, you know, you're growing to different markets. Is that your primary growth strategy or do you grow by also by creating additional products? Both. Uh, so we have like, we would have about, uh, 30 odd products in our line with variations that would put us into about the 70 range because there's different sizes. Um, but we also have private label and custom formula uh, accounts, but we're always adding new products to our catalog every single year. For example, um, this year, we aim to have 50 new products to our catalog by the end of the year. So B2B companies could come in and say, listen, this is the type of product I'm looking for. That's great. We have it here already you know, stabilized, tested. And if you want to make some alterations to it, we can do it without slowing down the process. So it is about, from a product perspective, you always have to be redeveloping products and developing new types of products. And you know, kind of pushing the, I suppose, the boundaries of cosmetic innovation and what we do. You know, um, for example, you know, we experience, we're, we're experimenting at the moment with, say, snail secretion or you know, bee poison um, to try to um, create different uh, cosmetic types and and seeing how they uh, how they perform you know we we commonly do studies uh, internally and externally which give us the information we need as to whether the research and development we're doing is something we should be pursuing or whether it's likely not going to work and I think that's the beauty about where we are especially in Ireland is that you know the Irish government heavily support R&D uh, especially from you know American companies or multinational companies, so we have uh, we have a really good thing going there, where a lot of the credits that we would get um, for R and D research can be pumped right back into the company because some of it is covered. You know, for, at the end of the year when we owe our corporation taxes, we get some of those credits that are taken off of that, and we can reinvest that back into the company. Then, being a, it just kind of triggers something. Being in um... Uh, having a location in, in Europe, um, how does that impact the whole you know, different regulation like GDPR, you know, the general data privacy regulation um, things, you know, how, how you have to kind of adapt to that and also any kind of foreign exchange kind of um, fluctuations? Yeah, so obviously with our uh, location in Ireland, um, we don't really deal with foreign exchange too much apart from when the transition comes, like our pricing is in euros and whatever that looks like on the other side, it is what it is. And are there times where that might dictate the relationship of, of being able to do business with, with, with other companies? Sometimes it is a, depending on where they're at with the currency exchange rate, sometimes that does actually impact it. Um, but in the two countries, US and, and Ireland, we operate solely in USD and euros. And uh, we make sure that that Obviously, we keep our costs stable then because we know the money we're getting in is exactly in the currency we need to, to operate in. So we're not really ever exposed too much. I think the only downside to it is depending on whatever part of the world um, we're trying to develop. Sometimes it can be a challenge. It depends on where where the economy is at, really. Um, you know, for example, um, you know, look, we have new relationships that we're building in Dubai at the moment in UAE. Uh, there was a time a year ago where that was a bit of a challenge due to the exchange rates, but now we're finding it a little bit more beneficial on the euro side because of the alignment. So it's peaks again. It's it's like everything. There's just there's peaks and valleys and everything, and it's just adapting to those variables and realizing that look, you might not be able to develop it right there in the moment, but there will be an opportunity. So you just have to be a bit patient. 
What about the GDPR? Are you affected by the different regulation? Um, no, we may, we just make sure that we're adhering to what we need to adhere to. Um, I wouldn't say we're affected by it. Um, you know, look, and, and to be honest, uh, we don't typically exchange information um, outside of the scope of where we need to. Uh, so, for example, you know, the the information that we acquire through, say, our Irish operation in Europe uh, remains as part of that in an isolated environment and the same with the U.S. So uh, we don't there's no real crossover. So we, we, we haven't come into any issues with that. And how do you protect your IP in the different uh, geographic locations? Well, one of the key things that we had to ask ourselves over the last couple of years was, you know, uh, out of where we operate, where is the best place for us to hold our IP? And we decided that that was going to be in Ireland. The IP laws in Ireland are extremely uh, strong um, and they're uh, extremely enforceable. So um, most of the, well, actually, sorry, all of the you know IP uh, submissions that we've done over the last, say, three years have all been through the, the Irish company. And that that's where we decided was best. Um, we do have other IP uh, rights in different countries through, you know, U.S. companies and stuff. And look, it, for right now, it's perfectly fine. But long term, the, the transition will eventually be all, all rights are obtained here and held here. Awesome. Any final tips that you have for uh, you know, owners who are looking to scale their business? Yeah, I just think, you know, as a business owner, you, you have to be adaptable and you have to be flexible and, um, you know, in times where it becomes uh, unknown territory, uh, it's great to have the right circle of people around you because look at the very beginning, um, naturally you have to invest in yourself. There's a bit of pain in that uh, because you have to pay money that you probably don't really have to get a goal or a result that you know might not happen immediately. Uh, but I just think if you if you stay focused on the fact that you know you don't need to know everything, you just have to have a good circle of people who do know more than you. And, uh, and that's, that's how you're, that's how things develop, you know, uh, and that's how you learn more and, uh, just make sure that the people surrounded, you know, around you on a daily basis are people that are just filling you with positivity and encouragement, because you could very easily fall into the, uh, into the comparison trap. And when you have a relationship around you from a business perspective, where you're always looking over the fence of what somebody else has or the success they have or what they've achieved, um, you're leaving that in the hands of potentially someone who can leverage that to make you feel less than, you know, you want people in your circle who make you feel more than make you feel like, you know, they're there for you and they want to see you do the best that, that you can. So that I think as you're growing, that's one of the key things. Your circle is a key part of it. That's, that's a great, uh, a great tip. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. This was you know very insightful. It kind of went back, you know, pretty fast. I enjoyed the conversation a lot. And I hope uh, the listeners enjoy it as well. How do people get uh, get in contact with you or if they want to you know, yeah. learn more about what you do? Uh, from a business perspective, um, yeah. Pro Hair Labs is on all major social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Uh, my Hangout is on LinkedIn. So if uh, if anyone wants to contact me, just search my name there and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see me. Yep. And we're going to have all that information in the show notes as well. So just Great. people can follow up on it. Well, thank you again, Ryan. And that's it for this week. Uh, thank you, everyone. And uh, to learn more about uh, this conversation, we're going to have a free webinar, a live webinar. So go ahead and sign up. We're going to have the link in the show notes. And don't forget to leave us a review on any podcast platform that you listen to. So next week, bye for now.